Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Good Life Podcast with Mike Safosnick. Really, really excited to talk to today's guest. But before I get to him, I just want to thank everyone who has listened to and subscribed to the podcast. You can find it by searching Mike Sappho on iTunes or any other podcast app. A quick, brief description about today's guest. If I'm wrong, I know he'll correct me in like 30 seconds. He left England and moved to Phoenix, Arizona while working on his stock trade. He had a little side job selling ecstasy. Naughty, naughty. Uh, he built a whole empire out of that. He famously beefed with the mobster, Sammy the Bull Gravano. He, re- he was arrested and faced 200 years behind bars. After all was said and done, he served six years and got banned from the United States forever. While in prison, he kept a journal and documented the treatment of prisoners, which I guess he smuggled out and it got national attention. He's authored the following books, uh, Prison Time, Life Lessons, Hard Time, and Party Time. He's been extremely vocal in the Innocence Project of Stephen Avery for Making Murderer, and he just released a book about Pablo Escobar. Welcome back to the show, an old friend. From the National Geographic Hick show, Locked Up Abroad and Banged Up Abroad, calling from all the way across the pond, the great Sean Atwood. Sean, what's going on, bro? Hey, thanks for having me back on again, Mike. I just listened to your interview with Bowden, the author of Killing Pablo. I thought that was fantastic. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Hopefully your description of Escobar and the war on drugs will uh, will be as good. I'm sure it will be. Yeah, I've tried to demystify Pablo and put it in a broader context of the war on drugs and other things that were going on at that time. Well, you know what, listen, I want to talk about making a murder and stuff, but let's get right to the Escobar thing, because on the cover of your book, it says Pablo Escobar, and on the bottom of it, it says The War on Drugs, book one. I'm assuming there's going to be more books. Explain why your book is going to be different from the other Escobar books, because, you know, with the hit show Narcos Out, there's a lot of books on Escobar. What makes your book different? Okay, I started researching Pablo's story about three years ago. And I read everything out there that I could get my hands on, watched all the videos on YouTube, watched the Narco series, of course. And the impression I got was his story was quite often put in the context of good against evil, where it was the authorities chasing down the bad guy, Pablo. But when you go beyond the surface of that, you find out, for example, that the people that were hunting him down at the end were actually working for the Cali cartel, which was sending cocaine into America, um, just taking over Pablo's business, and that includes the DAS, which was the equivalent to the Colombian FBI, and the Colombian government. They were taking money directly from the Cali cartel. And now it seems from you know books and from narcos, like originally it was the USA and the war on drugs, and then at the end it was like 
hey, let's get rid of our competition. And the Cali cartel basically, I would say, worked with the government and the authorities. Is that true? Yes, they were taking massive amounts of money from the Cali cartel. And towards the end of it, the CIA were providing information to a death squad called Los Pepes, which was made up of a lot of Colombian policemen and, and military and who and Los Pepes was financed by the Cali cartel, so the, the uh, CIA was working directly with the cartel that was sending cocaine into America, taking over Pablo's business. Now, sure, what made you choose Pablo Escobar to write your book about? Out of all the things, all the, I would say, quote-unquote drug lords, I know he's a fascinating character, but why Pablo Escobar? Okay, studying the war on drugs and the absurdities, the murder, the contradictions, the corruption, and everything that has manifested because of it. I wanted to get that story out there, but do it in the context of the most interesting people's stories that have been involved in the war on drugs. And I started to write a book about seven different characters whose stories interweaved. Um, Pablo was one of them. Another one was Barry Seal, and there's a movie coming out about him here in January starring Tom Cruise. He was a uh, CIA cocaine trafficking pilot. But in the end, um, you know, I researched so much about Pablo, I thought this, is, this has got to be one the, by far one of the most interesting stories ever to come from the war on drugs. And I thought I'll start with that because you know, he's got such a huge popularity right now because of Netflix. Um, because of this movie, The Infiltrator, and then this, this Tom Cruise movie that's coming out as well. It's got a lot of people interested in his story. Now, how did you do your research on him? Did you go to Columbia? Did you do interviews? How did you do your research on it? I'm always fascinated when people write a book on someone so, I guess, well-known as Escobar. I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you had to do those traditional things, go to the country, interview everybody around him. But now there's so much information available on the internet. There's so much information available from the books, interviews with his family members. Um, and that's basically what I did was just read all the books, looked at the interviews of the family members, looked at all the documentaries and, and, and put it together from there. And in, in the context of all this other research I was doing on the war on drugs. You, is this book focused more on Escobar? Because you've been very vocal on the, you know, quote-unquote war on drugs, um, just different aspects of it. Is it focused more on Escobar, more on drugs? Because it says, you know, the first book of, you know, the first book on the war on drugs. What is your book mostly focused on, the life of Pablo or how the government is involved with the drugs, basically? It is involved, um, the book is focused on Pablo's story and also the stories of the other leaders of the Medellin cartel. What I was in Medellin in January, and it's 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 weird because they will they'll never outwardly say they love him, but the respect they have, and they always say we'll never forget what he did for our country. Did you get the same vibe that he's so well respected? And um, see the word love, they wouldn't use the word like or love, but do you feel he's still uh, appreciated for what he did for the country? Absolutely. Again. A lot of the stories about him are pitched as good against evil, but he was an extremely complex character. You know, he grew up during the violence, the civil war in Colombia that left over 100,000 dead. 
that's when the, Colombi- the Colombian necktie was popular. They would slash your throat open, pull your tongue out, and hang it down your chest. And oh, there was God. another way they killed people called the flower vase cut, where they cut off your arms, your legs, and your head, and they shoved your arms and your legs down your neck so that you looked like a, a flower vase of liberated <laughs> limbs. These gorillas at this time almost killed Pablo's family. They came and set fire to his house. Soldiers rescued them. So he internalized this violence, and later on, you know, that came out with his general psychopathic traits. But in contrast to that, when Pablo was growing up, if you've read the, the book by Roberto Escobar, mm-hmm. he details how Pablo, as a teenager, got involved in politics. He learned about what the CIA was doing in South America, you know, sending these death squads in, working with neo-Nazis like Klaus Barbie and people like that. And um, he was appalled by it, and he thought he didn't want to get trapped in that cycle of poverty. He wanted to make money, and he, he, he said throughout his life, my money has a social function. And the politicians back then the elite people in Colombia, they owned very small percentage of the people owned most of the land and most of the resources and they would go in areas, these elites, and they would just evict peasants and if the, you know, they, they would go in and slaughter them as well, they would get killed so Pablo was a hero to these people who the public felt abandoned by you know, all, got all these little homeless children living at garbage dumps how could the government let this kind of thing happen? And Pablo would go in there, build these homes for the homeless at the garbage dumps, open hospitals, open soccer pitches, uh, and, and do all this thing. And that's why to this day, in, in many uh, people's homes in Colombia, he's, he's still revered as a saint. He is. It's funny. When you go to the very poor, you know, I did a tour of it, and when you go to the poor neighborhoods, he's still adored. Like, you see schools there, and you see buildings that... Years ago, it was just emptiness. It was just a field. It was just a garbage dump. And now there's schools there because of him. So it's hard for us to, oh, he was a great guy. But he did do very good for that, for the country. Yeah, and he, he said, you know, he was sick and tired of politicians who'd promised to do things for the poor and never, ever follow through. And he was the first person who, who followed through in the eyes of the poor people. And, he, you know, he did uh, spend a lot of money doing these good deeds. Some questions. I want to. I'm always curious when you watch and think about Escobar. You see the good he did. You see, obviously, the violence he did. After he was killed in Colombia, did Colombia become more dangerous, safer, or did it stay the same? Well, the drugs coming out of Colombia continued to come because that had been handed over to the Cali cartel. The murders surrounding the Escobar organization obviously went down. But if you look at, you know, the amount of murder and mayhem around the world, basically the cartel business got handed over to the Mexican cartels. So although the, the murders sloped off after Pablo, it just basically got transferred over to Mexico as the Mexican <laughs> cartel competed to fight over the exact same cocaine business that the Colombian uh, cartels were fighting over. I read somewhere that if they would have all, and obviously this happens, I think you're familiar with it, it's the greed aspect. If they would have all stayed in their, I guess, zones or whatever they were doing, not that it would have ever been peaceful, but it was more harmonious, and the greed just takes over. Is that true? 
Yeah, if you can produce something for a dollar in South America and sell it in America for $10,000, as in going from the, the, the cocoa plant all the way to cocaine on the streets of America, it doesn't matter what, uh, who's arrested, it doesn't matter who kills who, that black market is so big, people are always going to try to make that percentage profit. And, and when they start to make that kind of money, then they compete violently against each other and a lot of innocent people end up getting killed. That's why the war on drugs and, and drug laws are responsible, really, for causing a lot of this mayhem. I'm glad you brought that up because I have one more Escobar question, and then I want to get into your, you know, your opinion on the war on drugs because I watched many YouTube clips on you. I find it like just incredible. But would Colombia have been a better place if Escobar stayed in power? Well, Escobar tried to become the president of Colombia, didn't he? But that backfired, and that was one of his biggest mistakes. Um, you know, there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad come about. The good, like we already described, is investments in the schools, hospitals, mm -hmm. roads, soccer pitches. But the bad, you know, this, this guy was responsible, they estimate, for killing around 4,000 people and during his bombing com campaigns, a lot of innocent people got wiped out and also the, the airplane that they, they knocked down with a bomb. So, you know, who, who, who's to say um, what, what balances what? But in comparison to, it was, it was a much bigger gangster that took him down in the end. It wasn't the Cali cartel. It was George H.W. Bush. Yeah. And George H.W. Bush had, you know, all these resources behind him. And um, in, in my eyes... Bush is responsible for killing even more people than Pablo over the years, with, you know, with all of the, the bombings he's ordered in, in some of these poor countries. While doing your research on him, I don't want to say favorite, that might sound a little morbid, but what's the most fascinating or intriguing story about Pablo Escobar that you unearthed? <laughs> um, I'm about to do a video on YouTube that's going to have, actually, my most interesting Pablo Escobar facts on it. Um, let me think. I mean, there's, there's, there's some funny ones, like he always sang in the shower. <laughs> I found that quite interesting. He didn't smoke, he didn't drink, he did, did do a little bit of, of marijuana. Um, he had a pet parrot. There was a, he had a zoo at his hundred million dollar ranch and one of the reasons he didn't have any cats in the zoo uh, such as tigers or lions was because um, he had a pet parrot and the pet parrot would recite all of the soccer players names his favorite soccer players and one night the, the pet parrot got drunk and the cat the cat ate the parrot <laughs> and because he loved that parrot so much he, he banned um, any cats from being in his zoo <laughs> That's awesome. Now, Sean, <laughs> while I have you on, um, you've been extremely vocal in proclaiming both Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey, uh, like their innocence. Obviously, everyone's watching Making a Murderer. I just have a few questions about it. What got you so involved in the case? Because you're not just one of the people who will hashtag something. You're going out there. You're on the protests. You write letters to them. What, I guess, burned your fire, lit your fire to make sure, and what, convinced you of their innocence? 
Well, basically, I'd been ranting and raving about the corruption in the U.S. justice system for years. And mm-hmm. I was stupid enough to have committed crimes and, and put myself in there. And I deserved my punishment, and it actually did me good. But seeing the corruption, my heart really went out to people who were innocent and were victims of that. And when Making a Murderer was on, I was just blown away, you know, watching the his parents, especially his mother, you know, just seeing her face going to court time after time, her hopes raised and then just dashed. And I thought, good grief, you know, now the whole world is going to see what's really going on in, in the American justice system, you know. So right away, I knew that, that those guys would get a lot of people trying to contact them so immediately I put up some videos on YouTube how to send people money how to send them letters because you can't just you, there's all kinds of rules and regulations that the prisons put up you can't just buy somebody something and send it into a prison to try and help <laughs> them and then I ended up getting in contact with the family and other groups just sprung up on Facebook supporting those guys and which I joined and yeah since then we've you know we did a demonstration outside the US Embassy in London uh, the highest profile person with us that day was Miriam Margulies, uh, who's Professor Sprout in, Har- in the Harry Potter movie. Okay. So it, it, it did get a lot of momentum. Sean, um, cause I, I do have a few questions about it. I'm an obsessive reader, obsessive documentary watcher. When I finish a book or a documentary, I do like so much background research on it. I want to read all the court documents. But I'll admit, after the, watching the first few episodes of this, it didn't seem real. Like, it's like, this is no way this can be true. You go to a few sites, you know, I made the mistake of going to Nancy Grace and watching those things. People do say they're guilty. I have my own opinion about it. Believe me, it's very flawed, that whole investigation. But just a few questions, because you, you've done your research on it. If I give you three or four questions, do you think that, that he was framed because of the previous lawsuit? Like, Teresa Halbach, she was murdered. She was on his property last. She goes missing. Do you feel like law enforcement and whoever wanted to get him were like, holy shit, this is our chance. We can finally get him now? Yeah, he was on the verge of bankrupting those guys with his payout because if you look at all of the money he was going to get and if you look at all of the um, the people whose names were on the line, um, talking about a cabal of extremely powerful people in the justice system, and there was just no way that was going to be allowed to happen. The, you know, a lot of people, they downplayed the beginning of it, but he did 18 years for a rape he didn't commit, and the Innocent Project was all over that. Why hasn't the Innocent Project jumped on this one? Is it because they have other support groups out there? Well, as far as I'm aware, they did get back on it, and his new lawyer is, um, you know, leading the uh, appeal process right now so with the amount of support he's got from all over the world and the money that's come in I'm sure that everything's being done right now that can maximize his probability of getting out now haven't you exchanged letters with both of them is that true Uh, just Brendan Dassey Uh, he's such a sympathetic character when he asks about Wrestlemania he's like will I be home that it, it really can break your heart realistically, what is the end? Is there any chance of them getting out? Because, you know, there's stuff saying, oh, we're not even going to open the case again. Is, it, is there any realistic end where they are released or new evidence surfaces, any, anything like that? My prediction is it'll take three to five years to get them released. 
because they were framed, and the people who did the framing did not imagine in their wildest dreams that the spotlight of the world would be shine on what they'd done through Netflix. They didn't, they didn't even do a good framing job because they didn't <laughs> anticipate that. It is so poorly, poorly done. So, you know, I think it's inevitable that they will eventually get out, but the system will fight tooth and nail to protect, to protect the people that are in there because their careers are on the line. Did you find anything or has anything been discovered that wasn't in a documentary that you feel is important? Like, we watched the documentary. I'm like, okay, okay, I wish they would have touched maybe more on this. Is there anything that was like, holy crap, I wish that was in the documentary? That would have proved even more that you guys think they were innocent? Well, right away, people like Ken Kratz turned around and said, Netflix has left out all this stuff. And a lot of the media went with that. And they said it was stuff that would have shown that they were guilty. But the more I researched it, the more I found it was completely the opposite. And Netflix left out that, that Ken Kratz, he wasn't just sexting people. There's allegations of actual physical assaults. Um, sexual assault, and you know, I've, I've documented that on my blog and on my YouTube channel. But by Ken Kratz himself. Yeah. I, yeah, I think he, I read he, somewhere. He was, it, might, it, it might have been on your Twitter. Didn't he attack you verbally? Or did he, didn't he write to you somewhere? I I remember seeing that somewhere. That he didn't he write to you? Yeah, yeah Ken Kratz, because I was exposing <laughs> him, he put on Facebook that I was a douchebag. <laughs> I, uh, you know, the American people, and I guess people all over the world, uh, they always, I don't want to say sympathy, they always latch on to these innocent people who are wrongfully convicted. I've interviewed Damien Eccles from the West Memphis Three, and cases like that, Amanda Knox, they get so much steam, and they finally, um, they bring light to these kind of situations. But the thing, Amanda Knox, we know who killed them. Do we, and I'll never accuse anybody. Do we have a good idea who killed her? Because in the documentary, one thing I hated, Sean, was that they started saying how the ex-boyfriend was shady and, and like, you know, they bring you down the ex-boyfriend road and then it stopped and they didn't continue it further. Do we know without naming the killer so we don't get sued? Do, you, do we know who killed her? Do we have a really good idea who killed her? Is there any evidence of someone who killed her? You know what, Mike? I haven't watched uh, the Amanda Knox stuff. I did watch the West Memphis Three. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cent- Central Park Five, and yes, I think yes, anyone yes. who's watched Making a Mur- Murderer, they should get on Netflix and watch both of those to show how this goes on and how these guys can eventually get released. Uh, well, did you watch the Central Park Five one? Oh, of course, of course. I read the book too. The book was fascinating. Yeah, and you know th- those guys couldn't uh, have even possibly done it because it was th- th- the victim was taken off down a-, a trail. There was only one pair of footprints down this trail, wasn't there? Yet. They, they, they said this whole gang of young uh, black lads had done it and, and created a whole new world for it, wilding that they'd raped this woman. And uh, it, was just, it was just so sad. And, and how he, you know, one of them got released because the, the culprit actually felt bad that the, the, the falsely accused guy was there in prison with him. It was amazing. <laughs> it's funny. I, um, I appreciate, first of all, I appreciate you calling in, but the West Memphis Three, when I read that book, The Devil's Not, years ago, I got really involved yeah. in the case. I was just, okay, Damien, Jason, Jesse, they're innocent. And I was, you, I was getting furious reading about it. Um, and I would always say my mom was watching it. Everybody watched it. 
And I'm like, okay, you know what? Listen, it sucks because it happened back then. That can never happen again with cell phones and with evidence. And then it seems that it happened again. And it was, it's, it was really frustrating. Do you see it ever ending? Is that possible? Or is it always going to happen in these very – the Central Park Five was different. It was in New York City. But West Memphis, Arkansas, Wisconsin, these small places, do you just see it maybe always happening in these small places? It's always going to happen because as human beings, we're all fallible. And when you've got a justice system whereby prosecutors get promotions, rewards, they can get run for political office in relation to their conviction rates, in relation to their sentence lengths, then you, you've got them incentivized to find people guilty at all costs, no matter what. And that's why you've got DNA evidence now showing hundreds of people have been set up by prosecutors and detectives who were corrupt, just looking to enhance their own careers. And some of those people are on death row. I mean, my lawyer even got one on off death row. Oh, Ray really? Crone, the, Ray Crone, the snaggletooth killer. Waitress was found dead by a bar. Bite mark on her leg. DNA at the scene. Ray had been at the bar, so they went and arrested him. DNA didn't match. Bite mark didn't match. So they su- suppressed the DNA. They paid an expert witness $50,000 to say his teeth matched the bite mark. It's so common, it's called testy-lying. And they <laughs> gave him $5,000, $10,000 to defend himself. Court is like theater. Whoever has the most money at the end of the day puts on the best show, and that's usually the state. So Ray lost. His mum almost had a heart attack in the courtroom. And he was within hours of getting executed multiple times over 10 years. My lawyer got involved, forced the state of Arizona to release the DNA. They didn't want to release it, as is the case with a lot of these guys across the country right now. These states are refusing to release the DNA because they don't want these cases to unravel because they've got to pay out compensation. My lawyer, Alan Simpson, he, he had the DNA run through a crime lab it matched a guy who was in the prison system. The guy confessed to the murder, and Ray was released, and the state of Arizona didn't even give him an apology. And when was this? This was about 15 years ago or so. That is insane. Now, Sean, you came on my show a few... It was funny. I watched Locked Up Abroad, uh, and you came on. It was... And I'm like, you know what, let me try to find this guy. I found it pretty interesting. You came right on, and that was years ago. What have you been up to since then? On social media, on Twitter, you're in schools, you're promoting your book, you, uh, you seem like to be all over. What have you been up to? Yeah, I've been trying to make some good, uh, slow, slow and steady progress on all fronts, basically. You know, I did wrong by putting people on that road of drug use in the rave scene. So now I go out to school, they do over 100 talks a year, average audience size about 200. So I'm reaching about 20,000 students a year, telling them my story, scaring the living daylights out of them in the hope that they won't do all the stupid stuff that I did. Then I wrote my life story as a trilogy, party time, hard time, and prison time. And now, like you, we started out this interview talking about my Pablo book, and that's the first installment of my War on Drugs trilogy. And I'm hoping to have that whole trilogy published within the next year because the whole thing has already been written. Are, do, I know it just came out, what, a few days ago in the States. 
Is it selling well? Are you receiving positive reviews? Are you happy with what's going on with the book so far? Yeah, I'm happy with my book sales so far. I'd like to slowly increase it. Um, and what I've been doing is most of the money that's been coming in from the book sales, I've used that to donate 15,000 books to kids in state schools in the UK and to prisoners as well. That's what I've done in the last two years. And you've been on now for around 30 minutes, and I appreciate you taking your time. What do your other next two books entail? Is it any other drug lords, or is it more focused on the war on drugs? What's the next two books about? Okay, they're all gripping stories about people who've been caught up in the war on drugs, from people who have lost family members to the war on drugs, to people who work undercover in um, the war on drugs, and realize certain things about it people like mike levine he's um out of new york i think he would be a great guy for you to interview. he was an undercover d agent for about 25 years and he he rose up and was make, going to make some big arrests but every time he did so the cia stepped in and stopped him in the interest of national security um so my next book after pablo is about a guy called barry seal um, Barry Seal, he was flying cocaine into Maine, Arkansas. It's estimated he flew, he flew about $5 billion worth of cocaine in, in the 1980s. And that was all under the protection of the CIA. And that's the second? That's, that sounds incredible. Okay, and what about the third one? Because you said they're all finished up already. Yeah, yeah. the, sec the second one, it's, um, it's, it's called Maine, which is the name of the... Hollywood movie starring Tom Cruise that's coming out in January and the subtitle is Who Killed Barry Seal Pablo Escobar or George H.W. Bush so we look oh, at Pablo versus George H.W. Bush as the two lead murder suspects and then the third book is going to be called We Are Being Lied To mm -hmm. and then the subtitle is The War on Drugs because you know I thought drug laws were to stop young people from taking drugs because drugs are bad and the government was concerned about the health of young people. But once I started to research drug laws and when they came about about 100 years ago, it was to put black people in prison, it was to put Mexican people in prison, it was to put Chinese coolies in prison. And the people putting the money up for these laws were like the, the pharma, early pharmaceutical companies and other industries that were looking to keep hemp um, away from the, them because it was competing against them. So once I saw it was, it was steeped in racism and all this, this corporate interest, it, it really was an eye-opening thing, and it, it just led me to um, research the development of drug laws over the past 100 years. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's an outgrowth of this that's, that's led to, I feel, that a lot of the public has turned against the police um, because of drug laws because before these drug laws came about you know the police were arresting murderers pedophiles stopping robberies crimes were you know there was an actual physical victim but once the drug laws came about people like George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan were all over the TV saying we're hunting down the Pablo Escobars of the world when in reality they were arrested. The majority of the arrests were young people with weed and not dealers. 90% plus were people getting busted with weed for personal possession. Hundreds of thousands. And, and you know, Clint, the Clintons took it to the next level. 
And it's just kept going um, with marijuana still classified as a Schedule One substance, as harm, harmful as heroin and more harmful than cocaine, with no medicinal value whatsoever by the federal government. And I think it's because the people have got so sick of that that we've seen this decriminalization at the state level um, across you know, so many states now in America. It, it's, a, it's a backlash against these drug laws and a lot of these young people's lives getting ruined with criminal records. And you know, a young person getting arrested with weed, what happens? If they get thrown into a prison, they graduate to heroin, they graduate to crystal meth, make uh-huh. their criminal connections, and by the time they get out of prison, they are proper full-on criminals. So it's been an absolute disaster for the taxpayers, but there's so much money being made off it. And, and that's, now, that's why it's been kept in place. Your next two books, they detail, they get more into detail with that and different stuff like that? Well, you know, I don't want to come across as um, preachy and just throwing no, a load of detail not, of at the reader. So, so what I do is I'm trying to get the readers interested in this through these really exciting stories about people like Pablo Escobar, Barry Seal, Mike Levine, um, etc. And then, you know, showing that these things have come about because of these drug laws. I mean, the, the whole cocaine thing with Pablo, he, Pablo would never, ever have become, I think it was the seventh richest man in the world, worth some estimates up to $30 billion if there was no black market in cocaine, if there wasn't this huge consumer demand from America, and if American drug laws hadn't created that artificial price, he, he wouldn't have been able to have done any of that. Sean, always a fascinating interview. Three things. What does a 40-year-old Sean Atwood say to an 18-year-old Sean Atwood? Okay, at 18, I was just starting to get interested in the rave scene. And I thought drugs were fun, cool, it's a buzz. And I didn't understand how long that road of drug use was and what can happen to you on that road. So, you know, I would explain the consequences of of the horrors of of what drugs can lead to to that person. I would also tell that person to try and make slow and steady progress in life. Because I got off that slow and steady track to try and make some fast cash from selling ecstasy. And and that that is attractive to a lot of young people. But in the end, drugs is a sucker's game. Private prisons all over the world are looking for young people to get into that game because they look at them. As suckers, they can just make money off the backs of, so it, it, it's best avoided. Give all your plugs. Where can we get your book? Where can we see the YouTube videos? How can we follow you on Twitter? Because everything you post is pretty awesome. You have a huge following, so give all your plugs in now. Okay, all of my social media is under my name. So Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc. My blog, just put in Google, Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Atwood, A-T-T, Wood. Um, the easiest way to get my books worldwide is from the Amazon site. Again, just put my name into Amazon. I have an Amazon page, and all my books will come right up. Sure, we're going to finish with this. English Premier League starting soon. Who's your favorite club? <laughs> you know what? Living in Arizona for 17 years, I totally lost track of the oh. game. But, but prior... Prior to that, as a child, my club was Manchester United. Of course it was. All right, I'm actually going to be coming to London, I think in October or whatever, and I'll, we'll link up. Again, thank you for doing my show. I'll tweet it out in a little bit. You're always a fascinating interview. 
best of luck on the book, and I look forward to reading it, Sean. Hey, mate, if you're coming to London, we should have a chat, maybe film that, and we, we could uh, put that online. Without a doubt, my brother. I'll definitely keep in touch with you. All right. Take care. Appreciate being on. Sure. Thank you so much, man. Cheers. Sean Atwood. It was good. I think three years ago, I watched Locked Up Abroad, and his episode, I think it was called Raving Arizona. It's a great episode. It shows how he moved to Arizona, I guess, like as a maybe 20, 21, I guess. He got really into the rave scene, started selling ecstasy, and then his business was competing directly with Sammy the Bull Gravanos, and there was hits out on him, and it's really fast. He was facing 200 years in, uh, in Arizona prison. He definitely did time. He did like six years. He came out, and he is doing very well. He's very vocal in all these different things. So, everyone, thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode. Have a good day. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.